This is Small Talk with 101 ESPN's Michelle Smallman. Hi there, and welcome into episode 32 of Small Talk. I'm your host, as always, Michelle Smallman, and we have an interesting interview on deck for you this week. We are going to talk to Randy Carricker. He's one of the leading sports voices here in St. Louis. He works at my station locally, 101 ESPN. He's the driver of the afternoon drive show, The Fast Lane, and Randy is a St. Louis sports broadcasting legend. He's been around for 30 years. He's been there for every single major sports moment in St. Louis history during that time, and we're going to talk to him about the Super Bowl, about the Patriots defeating the Rams, and more specifically about this Rams hate that I have, that he has, that the city of St. Louis has, that's just been boiling for a while. And now that the Rams lost the Super Bowl, it feels like maybe it's time to have the conversation about us putting this thing to bed. Is now the time that we've moved past this and we finally get over them leaving the city. So we're going to talk to Randy Carricker about that. Really excited about that conversation. But before we do that, let's do three random things. We're going to check in with Freeze Pops, who isn't in studio today. He's actually under the weather and he's checking in from home. We're going to have him on the phone. And he is so dedicated to this podcast that even on a sick day, he's going to call in. So, Tom, thanks for doing this. I hope you're feeling at least a little bit better. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, I, I know that you people need this podcast as much as I need the podcast mentally. You know, this is my place to kind of vent every week. So, let's do this. You don't sound great. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Look, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm battling through this for you guys, the listeners. Okay. Well, let's kick this off then with something I know is going to make you feel good, Tom. Since you're not feeling great right now, let's just up your spirits a little bit. We've got to talk about the Patriots winning the Super Bowl, defeating the Rams. Oh, how great was that game, Michelle? I mean, honestly, as happy as I am, you must be even. I mean, over the moon at this point, right? I mean, this is exactly what you wanted. Who do you think is more thrilled with the outcome, you or me? What's what's? I mean, it, I wonder where the delineation is for excitement. Does it go towards the bitter, angry former Rams fan who doesn't want to see them succeed in any way, or is it for the tired and true Patriots fan who is rooting for them with every ounce of them to succeed? I don't know. That's so tough because you've seen so much success with the Patriots, and this is kind of the first time that I would have seen potential success for the Rams. So there's a lot yeah, of that, factors here. Right. That's what I was going to say is, you know, this is the sixth Super Bowl I've seen in my life for them to win. So for you, I mean, this was the first time that you've kind of been faced with, oh, no, this might happen. So it, it's almost as if you – watching the Rams lose on Sunday was like me watching the Patriots win their first Super Bowl, right? So I feel like you might be happier than me. Is that weird? We're going to talk about this with our guest this week, Randy Carricker, about this lingering Rams hate. It, it's not even so much hate at this point. It's this complicated cocktail of emotions that myself and a lot of St. Louisans have about this. Yeah, I was pumped that they lost, but the game was so boring and there was it was so anticlimactic that I expected myself after they ended up losing the game, like when I envisioned it in my mind, I, I pictured myself being so hyped and so pumped that they lost. And at the end it was just kind of it wasn't a bang, it was more of a huh, okay. You know? Yeah, see see for me, okay, so then so then there's the difference because you know, when the Patriots won, I cried. And then I was at the bar in St. Louis where all the Boston fans watch. 
Wait, you cried this playing. time? Oh, yeah, I cried. Yeah. Well, it was more of a homesick thing, honestly. Yeah, yeah. And, like, as soon as Sweet Caroline started playing in the bar and they're handing out the celebratory shots, oh, man, I, I kind of lost it. Not going to lie. I'm, start, I'm actually starting to tear up, like, thinking about it right now. You it are was just, like, so sneaky emotional. <laughs> I'm an emotional guy. And I don't know. I was – God, that was just uh, – that's, that's – it's when little things like that happen when, when I get homesick, you know? Like, I normally am so kind of focused on the job and in the moment with what we do every day because it's such a grind mm-hmm. that I don't really think about it. But then, you know, little shit like that happens, and I turn into a big baby, you know? Um, yeah, well, it's it, hard. I mean, these, these people have been in my life for 20 years, and to see them succeed after having such a weird season and still winning a Super Bowl, especially after what happened last year in the Super Bowl, it's just it all kind of just hit me like a ton of bricks, and I was just like, God, this is this is awesome. And then I had a three-way call with my dad and my brother, and that was awesome. My brother was absolutely hammered. Um, my dad was wicked happy. I mean, it was just it was a really it was nice. It was a really nice night. And then then we had the show the next day, and I was able to gloat about the Patriots. So, I mean, I think that's where the that's where we can look at it and say, okay, maybe I was the one that was happier because I literally cried when the Patriots won. Yeah, I certainly didn't cry out of happiness from the Rams' loss. So I think that you win, Tom. I think you're more excited than I was. Would you have cried if the Rams won? No. No tears have been shed over this. It's just a roiling anger. It's underneath the surface. Like, right now, I feel very unaffected by it, despite us having this conversation. But it's one of those things where in the buildup to the Super Bowl, we here in St. Louis, we know the story. We know what happened. We know how corrupt the system was. And to see so many people just blatantly push out rhetoric and propaganda about this team and the relocation and the owner that's so factually incorrect is what makes my blood boil. I'm reading some of this stuff saying, how can you in good conscience as a journalist put this out when you know it's not true? (laughs) So my anger comes from different places. It's so funny to hear you kind of go on that little mini rant because I heard that rant in commercial breaks for the two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. Like you and Bernie, every single day when one of these news stories would come out from Mr. National Journalist, like trying to tell the story of St. Louis. And every single day, you got, each of you would be like, well, they didn't say this and they missed this and blah, 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 blah. And towards the end, luckily, there was, I, I think we had one or two that we ended up really liking that actually got the story right. But it felt like over and over again, the national writer would try and parachute in and, and tell the story and just completely whiff. And it was making you guys so mad. It's infuriating because I try to... (laughs) And I get it. I completely get it. So, okay, let me take you down a path. Stick with me here. Let's talk about a hypothetical story, okay? Okay. I don't know if I'm going to like this, but okay. No, just stick with me. All right. Imagine (laughs) that... Okay, so you're in a new city in St. Louis. You meet a girl. You guys start dating. Things progress pretty quickly, and you hit your peak fast. You guys fall in love, and you get married. And so then for the next decade, things kind of take a turn. You go from that super high peak to when you're in love and everything's great and things 
start to erode. Okay, your girl, she gains some weight. She loses her job. She's racking up a bunch of credit card debt. She's basically in the depths of her life. And what do you do during that time, Tom? You support her. You say, babe, I'm going to get you through this. And what does she do to repay you? How does she respond? She starts emotionally abusing you. She says it's your fault that she's gained the weight. It's your fault that she lost the job. And it's your fault that she's emotionally in this place. And you're thinking, what? So then you find out that as you're supporting her through this super dumpy phase, she's been cheating on you this entire time. And you're devastated. You're thinking, what? What did I do to deserve this? But you look at the situation and say, you know what? We're married. You're my partner. We have built something here. If you feel I've pushed you to this, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be better. You're in a full Stockholm syndrome at this point, all right? So your girl says, okay, you better let this cheating go or else I'm going to leave you. So again, you're trying to be supportive, work through this. She levels a threat. So then she makes you get on your knees and beg and plead to keep her, even though she's cheating. And on top of that, she says, you know what? Build me a new house. I want you to build me a new house. And you say, okay, whatever it takes, I'll get a bunch of jobs. I will get the money together to build you a new house. You have literally just offered to build a house for someone who just cheated on you. That's the state that you're in. This is your life now. And in the end, what does she do? She leaves you for another dude who's younger and blonder and hotter who doesn't even care about her. He only wants to be with her because he found out that she has some family money and he's going to take that money and then he's going to bounce. And to make matters worse, after she cheats on you, you offer to build her a new house and she eventually leaves. She takes to the streets and she says, you know what? Tom's a loser. He's never going to make anything out of himself. He's the reason that I got in that dumpy place. And now that I'm with this hot guy, I'm going to be better. And you're absolutely crushed. You can't believe this is happening. She moves across the country and suddenly, boom, like that, your dumpy girl is a smoke show. She's a full 10. She's bounced back. She's got a sick body, a nice job. She's flaunting it on Instagram. She's influencing. She's hashtagging ad sponsored. And you're like, what the hell? You were 30 pounds heavier and in sweatpants for the past decade. Where did this come from? So she gets engaged to the young guy, and that's the person she left you for, and you're not wanting them to succeed. You're not going to watch their wedding on TV and hope that it has a happy ending. You're just not. I feel like I shouldn't even add anything and just, you know, say the words mic drop and we should move on here because that was incredible. That was incredible. <laughs> I mean. Oh, my God. But that's that was like everything that the happened. Funniest, <laughs> I mean, like that... a most amazing comparison I have ever heard. But that's oh what happened. God. And obviously, St. Louis is the supportive spouse and Stan Kroenke and the Rams are the dumpy partner that eventually gets hot and leaves you and treats you terribly. And when you put it in a context like that, you would say to me, to any of your friends, oh my gosh, that's a terrible relationship. You are so lucky that you escaped that. Who wants to be with that? But then if all of a sudden you're watching Sports Center and they're saying, yeah, let's just call her J- Jessica. Oh my God, Jessica is the salt of the earth. She is so great. We are so happy for her success. You're gonna look at the TV and be like, Jessica's the worst. Jessica is the worst, right? You're never going to want people to think that Jessica is great. Uh, the, the metaphor continues, and it's still fantastic. <laughs> I, that was awesome. Oh, my God. Yeah, I would be really mad at all of that stuff. Yeah. that I wouldn't know what to do. Uh, so 
maybe I'm going to reverse back and say you were happier that the Rams lost <laughs> yeah, in maybe the Super now Bowl. I am. Well, we're going to talk about this later in the podcast with Randy Carricker because a lot of people here locally and nationally, they're saying you people need to get over this. And I kind of agree. At some point, we are going to have to get over it. And every day that passes and every year that they don't win, it it dulls a little bit. And we're going to have to get to that point. But anyway, Man. I'm glad. I'm glad that now Good that for I, you, Michelle. I put it in that a way that awesome. you can understand you're fully on my side. <laughs> yeah, that was incredible. Wow. I feel like we need to like write that out and like etch that whole rant on a stone somewhere and like put that in front of the dome. That was kind of off the top of my head, too. I was trying to think of all the terrible things he had done to the city. <laughs> you know how he torched it on the way out saying that we'll never be a successful market and how he was cheating by buying the land. <laughs> and after he bought the land, he came back and said, oh, you guys have to get on your knees and basically beg and give me money to build a stadium. And we said, OK, great, we'll do it. <laughs> so it was hard because in the moment I'm trying to think of all I mean, I could have done a million. But anyway. All right. So, Tom, on to random thing number two. I want to talk plain etiquette. All right. This is something that. We touched on a little bit, travel etiquette, things like that. But I went to Sedona this past weekend. First, I was in Phoenix for the Waste Management Phoenix Open, which, by the way, is just a killer sporting event. It is so fun. Big golf tournaments like that are are a good time anyway. But this one especially, people are getting loose at this thing. The 16th hole is iconic. There's just tens of thousands of people there. They're pounding beers. They're dressed as bananas. It's an overall good time. I would highly recommend that people, if you can, if you have the the option to go there, you should check it out. But after that, my family... We went to Sedona, uh, and I ran a half marathon, also a beautiful place. And we flew back early Sunday morning so that I could watch the Super Bowl. I had to get up at about 3 a.m., which isn't that terrible considering the time we No, that's pretty early. The, that's well, early. Yeah, but we normally get up around 4. So, any, But anyway, I had run a half marathon. I had drank the night before with my family. Get up early, get on a plane. So I'm sitting on the plane. We're getting ready to take off. This woman sitting next to me turns to me. She says, hey, excuse me. And I was like, yeah, what's up? She goes, would you mind if I ate these hard-boiled eggs that I had made at home and packed for this flight? And I looked at her, and I said, laughing, kind of, you know, in a jovial tone, I said, yeah, I think the whole plane would mind if you ate hard-boiled eggs right now. And she was laughing, and then she goes, no, but seriously, do you care? And I said, no, seriously, I will vomit if you eat those right now. And I'm not a hard-boiled eggs fan anyway, but I just thought about that in that moment. When you get on a plane, if you're a normal human being, if you know social standards and just human etiquette, you know that eating a hard-boiled egg in a confined space with no ventilation is not a good idea. So why do you even ask that question if you know the answer to it? Yeah, so I was going to say, did she eat it anyways? No, because that would have been such a hard move, and I would have hit the button to the stewardess and been like, I have to move my seat. See, so you're you're way more badass about that than I am because if they asked me, I would have been like, oh, yeah, no, it's completely fine. And I would have just like grinned and bared it the whole time and hated them and then complained to all my friends about it. I definitely wouldn't have told them no. Like more power to you. And it probably had to do with the fact that it was so early and you were like – slightly hungover yeah that's why i said that because that certainly contributed to my (laughs) boldness right but it's bold of her to ask it's bold of her to think it's okay what what i was going to say conversely is that like the fact that she asked meant that she knew it wasn't okay but like she shouldn't have asked she should have just gone for it she brought the hard-boiled eggs she clearly wanted to eat them she knew it wasn't okay So why even broach the subject with the stranger next to you? Just go ahead and eat them. 
I know. That's what I would have done. Oh, but then it would have just been. There's a couple things on airplanes that really, really annoy me. If you're going to eat something smelly, you're just a bad guy or girl. I mean, you do not bring tuna on a plane. You do not bring hard-boiled eggs on a plane. This is disgusting. What are you thinking? Also, one of the things that grosses me out more than anything is people that bite their nails. And if you're sitting next to me and you're biting your nails and then spitting them out on the plane, you're a savage. Mm. You're a barbarian. You should have your flying privileges revoked. That is disgusting. <laughs> I mean, who wants to sit on a plane with someone's nail shards and debris all around? Absolutely no, no one. It's disgusting. This is not your personal yeah. bathroom. Lock it up. <laughs> Having sandals on and then taking your shoes off and being barefoot. Also, this is not a Best Western. I mean, you're in a community space with other people. What are you doing? And then, obviously, we know the psychos who, as soon as the no seatbelt sign goes off, they're rushing to get off the plane when there's 100 people in front of them who can't go anywhere. Yeah, no, the sandals thing, I think, is the biggest point that you made that I agree with, like, don't wear sandals on a plane. Like, I don't care if you are the hottest girl on planet Earth. I don't want to see your feet on the plane for multiple hours in a row. I just don't. No. I don't I don't care. I, I just put some sneakers on like everyone else. For sure. Or, or, or Compression wear socks. Like, slippers on a plane I'm completely cool with. High comfort, closed toe shoe. Uh, you know, I respect the hell out of a slipper on the plane. But no, don't. <laughs> Don't give me, don't give me a sandal. That's that's where I draw the line. But with the with the nail cutting, I mean the nail uh, biting thing. I mean a lot of times that's like a medical condition. So I don't think that we want to be too insensitive here. People do struggle with that. Really? Uh, I personally don't. But yeah, you know, people have like anxiety and stuff. You know. I so. know a lot of people with anxiety that don't bite their nails on a, <laughs> no, on a plane you, and spit them out. Hey. Anxiety is a is a uh, anxiety is you know, a very real affliction. I'm not being thing. insensitive yeah. to anxiety. I'm being insensitive to you spitting your nails at me. <laughs> spitting them at you. Well, Disgusting. I mean, in my general area, it's sick. Yes, I've never I've never had to deal with that, but Ugh. that would be very very unpleasant. I was thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this woman, and I'm thinking about plain etiquette, and I feel. That this is a brilliant idea. It's a million-dollar idea, and I want to present it here to you. Just okay. like Uber, there should be a plane rating. You should have a plane rating. And stewardesses and your people next to you automatically get to rate you on how good of a passenger you are. So that when you buying a ticket on a plane, you can see... I know Southwest is different because they board differently, but a lot of other airlines, you pick your seat before you get on the plane. You should be able to look at the people around you and see what their rating is. So then you can decide, mm, I don't want to sit next to someone with a 1.2 rating out of five. I'm going to bump up to first class because I would rather not sit next to a terrible person. I'd rather pay the extra $36. You should be given that choice. Or you should at least mentally prepare going into a, a flight knowing that this person next to you has a really low rating and it could potentially be a bad experience yeah no it's a great call um i mean yeah so if there's only like two or three seats left on a plane though like but i, I guess you accounted for that by saying at least you can mentally prepare for the bad you know companion on the flight so well and no, it's a great call i think people may be more apt to act appropriately on a flight because they're concerned about their rating i know that you don't want to get intoxicated and vomit in an uber because that's gross and your rating will plummet and then you have to pay for it so whatever the 
plain etiquette version of that is maybe you won't act so gross because you're concerned about your rating. And another thing about Ubers with the ratings is if you have a low enough rating, an Uber driver can decide not to take you. So maybe in this uh, hypothetical situation, airlines can deny tickets to people with really low passenger ratings. That's a great. See, I mean, we're just making it up as we go. And I yeah, think we're it's just brilliant. On here. Uh, any airline but United, holler at me. Because we know my thoughts on United after my terrible trip. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. I forgot back. about that. Yeah, but anyway. All right, Tom. Last thing. Random thing number three. News hot off the presses. Taco Bell is now delivering. And if you order $12 or more worth of Taco Bell, you get free delivery. Wow. That is an absolute game changer. That's a game changer for the hangover game. Yes. Like when you're hanging out the next day with a bunch of people – and you partied the night before, and you just really want a beefy, you know, five-layer burrito <laughs> and some Baja Blast and maybe some fire sauce to go with that. Cheesy Gordita Crunch, mild sauce. Oh, my God. Cheesy Gordita Crunch, a Crunch Wrap Supreme, any of those delicious items. <laughs> I mean, it's such a game changer because then there's always the, okay, well, who's going to go out and get it for everyone? Because not everyone goes. You always send one person out. Oh, and I would be um, the one who would pay the cab driver an extra 17 bucks to swing us through Taco Bell. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm always, if we're Ubering back to, like, with, with the roommates, you know, you tell the Uber guy, hey, we'll buy you something if you go through Taco Bell. He's like, deal. To your point there, though, I'm thinking about Taco Bell delivering, and I'm thinking about all the great things we have at our fingertips now that would have made my college experience so much better. When I was in college, there was no Uber. When I was in college, there was no DoorDash. You didn't have Taco Bell delivery. You didn't have all these dating apps. We didn't have Netflix. I mean, if we went to movie, we had to walk to That's for Entertainment down the street and be like, oh, can you believe my best friend's wedding checked out? This is the worst. I mean, obviously, oh that movie God. was way ahead of us, but I'm just saying it was... Did you go to school in the 90s? How no. old are you? I mean, I am not that old, Tom, but I'm just saying all of these technology changes have happened in the past basically five years. We had Facebook when I was in college, but that was it, and it was only college kids, and only some schools had it. I remember coming home for Thanksgiving and being like, oh, do you guys have the Facebook? And a lot of my friends from Mizzou or Eastern were like, what is the Facebook? I was like, oh, please, you'll probably get it soon, and thinking I was so cool because I had the Facebook, and you had to have a college email address to even get it. That was like the only form of social media we had and it wasn't even that big of a thing you used it kind of as a google search to find people but we didn't really have texting until the end you know if you were planning on meeting somebody somewhere you had to show up you could call them on their cell phone but that was the plan for the night just all of these things that college kids have now i think it's kind of a peak time to be in college well michelle i gotta say i had all of those things when i was in college and they were awesome i could text i could uber I could use Grubhub. I had uh, Postmates. I had all that stuff, and it Netflix. was fantastic. Oh, of course, yeah. I had Netflix. I had Hulu. Uh, I mean, I'm pro I'm forgetting stuff right now. I had all the social medias. Uh, I, I had a BlackBerry. Then I had an iPhone. Sick. Hashtag privilege. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't know what to say other than I enjoyed college and all of those things made my college experience great. Yeah, so I'm jealous. I kind of, I kind of feel bad that you had to go through the rigors of the college life with, you know, without Netflix. You had to go down to the blockbuster and uh, no, no. fight That's for the next rom -com. Get it right. <laughs>
No bottles. What was it called? That's Rentertainment in Champaign, That's Illinois. That's Rentertainment. Yeah, Unbelievable. I wonder if it's still open. I highly doubt it, but. So did you have to, like, dial star six, seven to, like, get information for, like, phone numbers? What was it? Star star something. I know star six, like, nine, I think, numbers. blocked the number if you were, you know, trying to okay. call somebody. But that was high school. I mean, no, I mean, we had the internet, Tom. It's not like we well, couldn't I don't Google know. things. The way that you're presenting this to me, it's like you guys were, like, writing on scrolls and using like abacuses to like do math like i i have no idea yeah reading by lamplight <laughs> yeah see, like you guys were using overhead projectors in classrooms like i don't know well i think we probably did use a projector oh, oh, oh awkward well all those things <laughs> would have made my college experience that much better it also would have made me exponentially more lazy i wonder if i would have graduated slash done as well in college if i had all of those things at my disposal all the time hmm that's interesting because I, I wonder if I would have been less lazy had I not had all this stuff. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but I, mean... I don't think I was that lazy, but I don't know. I guess if I, I, I guess I don't know any other way. So. Well, I mean, think about this for a second. When I was in college, my alarm would go off and I would turn it off and I would lay in bed and think, okay, I have to get up to go to my class or go to the gym or whatever it was. What do people do now? They grab their phone and they scroll through it. And they're looking at social media, they're checking their email, they're texting, whatever. In that small window that you have in college when you're probably hungover, when you're laying in bed and you're thinking, ugh, I have to go to class. I mean, if you if you have nothing else at your disposal in that moment, you're more likely to get up and go. Whereas if you're hungover or you're really tired or you don't feel like going, which is nine times out of ten, and then you start messing around on your phone, 30 minutes go by, you're less likely, I think, to get up and go. It's a great take because I definitely missed some classes doing that. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, hey, this Taco Bell delivery thing is amazing, and I'm going to start utilizing it. I don't even care. I am going to just be doing it solo, and I need to just order more food than I would have and have leftovers just because I want to be able to say that I used the Taco Bell delivery. Oh, you should do that tonight. It might make you feel better. You know what? Taco Bell cures colds. It's a fact. Thanks, Tom. Get some rest. We'll check in with you at the end of the podcast and read some reviews. But coming up next, Randy Carricker of 101 ESPN, one of the lead sports voices here in St. Louis. We're going to talk to him about the Rams and if it's time for us to get over them leaving the city. Take 101 ESPN on the go with the all-new 101 Sports app. See the latest videos, listen to podcasts, and join the conversation with the 101 Sports app. This is a conversation that I've wanted to have for a long time. Randy Carricker, local broadcasting legend here in St. Louis, is a mentor of mine. I used to be his producer back uh, in the day before I went to the network uh, for the Fastlane here on 101 ESPN. But more importantly, now he's a friend of mine and someone I go to to talk about various things, including our shared hatred for the Rams. And I wanted to have Randy on the podcast for a while, and there was a lot of different avenues we could take. But when the Rams went to the Super Bowl and the buildup to that, Randy and I I just shared this mutual animosity about the way everything was being portrayed and just their general success. And so I wanted to have Randy on to have a little therapy session of sorts. Maybe it's time for us to move past this. Maybe it's time for us to turn the page and finally close the book. So Randy Carricker, thank you for taking the time out of your day to do this. Welcome to Small Talk. I've always wanted to do a little small talk, so I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I feel like you would be very good at small talk in the real world, Randy. You're just one of those affable guys. Yeah, I I, I like to talk, obviously, have a good time with people. And 
like to go outside the box sometimes. Off the rails, I think, is the way we put it in the fast lane. So, yeah, it's it's always fun. Okay, so Randy, in my opinion, you are St. Louis sports. You are the guy. You've been in St. Louis your entire life, yep. born and raised. And how long have you been broadcasting here? The first time I was on the air was 1987 at KMOX. So we're talking 32 years coming up. I got hired actually as a producer. My first full-time job was February of 1984, before you were even born. Wow. And uh, I am really lucky. I've received a paycheck. I, I've Every single pay period since I started in 1984, I've been employed. I haven't been out of a job where I, I wasn't getting paid at any point during that time. So I've been pretty lucky. Yeah, I read an article about a guy. He used to work in the industry. I believe it was for Sports Illustrated. I think he was a writer. And now he delivers packages for Amazon, which, you know, don't get me wrong. It's a good job. But it was just another reminder to me that our positions in sports broadcasting they're super limited and sometimes fleeting, so we need to appreciate our seats at the table while we have them. Yeah, I try to not worry about things I can't control, and if somebody else owns the station and they don't want you around, what can you do about it? Right. You have to move on to the next thing. But I am also aware enough to recognize that I have been in the right place at the right time a lot. I've been really lucky. When I started at 101 ESPN, I, Bernie Miklas and I were doing a show at 1380 AM. And on August 22nd, they brought me in and they laid me off. I was a budget cut. It was a Friday. And I emailed John Kioski, the general manager at 101 ESPN, and said, I heard that you guys were maybe considering switching to sports. Should we talk? Because I just got laid off. And he emailed me. I, I emailed him on Friday night. I got an email back Saturday morning. Said, absolutely, we should talk. We had breakfast the following Tuesday, and I, I basically got hired then. Wow. So it was only a happenstance that the timing worked out that I got laid off by one place and there was a job opening at another spot. So right place, right time. It's a good thing. It's fortuitous. Well, Randy, I bring up the fact that you've been doing this in St. Louis for so long because you have been there for pretty much every major sports milestone mm -hmm. over the past 30 years. I mean, you've had a front row seat to most of it. And I think for many people, there are all of those where were you moments. For me in my lifetime, it's certainly... Where were you when Mike Jones made the tackle in the 99 Rams mm -hmm. Super Bowl? Where were you for game six, David Freeze? Where were you when Albert Pujols hit that bomb off Bradledge? And one of the things that's become part of that circle is where were you when you found out that the vote had come down to allow the Rams to leave St. Louis? And one of the things that I want to do is self-evaluate. You know, I think self-awareness is a really important thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, both fans of the show and who are close to me personally, have said, you know what? The Rams have been gone for a couple years now. You've got to let this thing go. You can't be so angry anymore about the Rams leaving. And the only person that I know that feels this passionately about the Rams leaving and is still as consistently upset as I am is you. Well, for me, I was actually in Houston, and it, it's January 12th of 2016, so we're coming up on the three-year anniversary as we speak, and uh, I had spent the entire day, Chris Files from the station and I went down to the vote, and I found out that they were officially moving. I, I remember it vividly. I was sitting on the left side of a table in the workroom in uh, the Houston Hyatt Regency, and uh, I think Jason Cole of Yahoo broke the story that uh, the vote had gone the Rams way. And it just became a matter of negotiations mm -hmm. between the Rams and the Chargers and the league and the Raiders to get it finalized. But then 
Roger Goodell and his cronies come into the room and they announce that uh, the vote had gone 30 to 2 in favor of the uh, of the Rams moving to Inglewood and the reason there's a lot of reasons that I I won't get over it but I think the biggest thing is is that these were evil doers and I think if we just move on from what evildoers have done to us in any walk of life, then it's bound to happen again. And I don't think that we should just allow people to do evil things. And this, in the broad scope, was it evil to, uh, on a personal level? Well, to us it was. Yes, it was, because that was a passion of ours. It was mm-hmm. it was something that we had that they took from us and did it in a really untoward and unfair manner. So I don't think that we should just say, okay, I'm over it, because something that I was passionate about, something that I really cared about, invested in emotionally and financially, they took that away from me in an unfair manner. No, I'm not going to get past that. I'm with you. When people say, why are you still so angry about it? I look at them, I say, it's an integrity thing for me. St. Louis losing the Rams, it's not the first time a franchise has moved from a city, especially in in a bad manner. We've seen this Mm -hmm. before in history, and it just seems like people kind of get over it. Eventually, time will heal a lot of wounds. But I just had never seen such a blatantly corrupt process play out in an era where it's being covered by all of these people. And it's so obvious that what they're doing is wrong. And not only is just moving a team, I don't think people realize the aftershocks that losing a team has on a city like St. Louis. You're talking, what, a $100 million hole that you left us in with this stadium. Mm -hmm. You're talking all of this money that the city, which could have definitely used in other sectors, put forward towards buying land and hiring engineers to put this stadium project together because the league told us if you do this we will stay it's all these people who've lost jobs it's it was really wrong the way that it happened stan Kroenke is a scoundrel he's a, he's a villain he's a he's a really bad human being who told bernie Miklas that he was going to do his damnedest to do everything he could to keep the rams in st louis then did literally nothing never met kitty ratcliffe the uh, person who runs the cvc who was basically his landlord never met the mayor of the city of St. Louis at the time, Francis Slay, never spoke to the governor at the time, Jay Nixon, personally, and was completely on board with talking to interests from L.A. And so he lied, he hid, and he lied about it. And from a league standpoint, you're 100% right. They've got these guidelines that they put in place, which St. Louis adhered to to the letter, but the league never gave St. Louis a chance to keep the franchise. As a matter of fact, they did more, the league did, to keep the Chargers in San Diego and the Raiders in Oakland when they didn't come close to matching what the guidelines required. So uh, the the league really is a dishonest, corrupt cartel. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of good reasons to to hate what the league is. And you know, it kind of feels like I was in a cult for a while. I drank the Kool-Aid and all of a sudden I snapped out of it and I can look at the landscape around me and see what's happening. And I think that's why it's so frustrating because when I found out about the vote, it's it's so funny how life works. And I you were was, working, right? You were in I was Connecticut working, working because working. you had me on your show. That's right. You and Bernie. Well, and this is a funny story. So uh, we knew that the vote was coming down that day and I was producing a nighttime show. Mm-hmm at the time and I remember sitting at my cube and I'm refreshing the computer waiting for the news on Twitter and the news comes down and I started boiling. I got all red and hot 
And I was just infuriated that this was allowed to happen. Well, the programming that was on at the time was taped programming. So wouldn't you have it, my show that comes on that I'm producing is the first show that goes live Mm -hmm. to announce the news of this vote. So I'm having all these meetings with my bosses and they're like, well, we need to get somebody from California in to talk about how exciting it is to have the team back. And I said, wait a second, no, no, no. That's not the story. The story here is how the league so blatantly threw out their own guidelines. They had a secret vote for the first time in league history, and they're ripping a team out of a community that has public money on the table for a stadium. Mm -hmm. How is that not the story? So if I wasn't in that chair, the narrative would have been, we're going back to California, celebrations all around. And I think that's what really bothers me the most is that the general public really just doesn't care and they have no idea how this really went down and they won't care until it happens to them. Right. And the league felt that way. I remember asking uh, Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, as he was walking out of the hotel, uh, he he was giving this speech. Well, uh, L.A. got their team back and uh, the the Chargers are going to get what they want. The Raiders are going to get what they want. Everybody wins. And I said, what about St. Louis? And he said, well, not everybody. And nice. so uh, they they don't have any concern at all for the people that are in their markets. And to believe so is ridiculous. And ultimately, Stan Kroenke wanted to own a team in L.A. If Stan Kroenke would have owned the Vikings, they would have been the L.A. Vikings. If Stan Kroenke would have owned the Bengals, they would have been the L.A. Bengals. If he would have owned the Colts, he his thing was to expand the value of his franchise so that he could be higher on the Forbes 400 list. It had nothing to do with our city. It had everything to do with him and going to the number one market. And Kevin Demoff told me, especially after he bought Arsenal, it became a big thing for Kroenke to own a team in a, a bigger market. And so he's got that. And I do think, and I this might be a little bit of rationalization on my part, which I am want to do, but I do think that we had the NFL at its pinnacle, mm-hmm. and I think that they have uh, they have maximized their league in the United States of America. I, do, I don't think there's any place else to go but down for the NFL. Mark Cuban laid it out so well about a fattened pig. Yeah. This is kind of one of the theories I have about why it hurts so badly that the Rams were ripped from us. I hate when people say St. Louis lost the Rams like it's an errant sock that you lose in the Mm. wash somehow. We didn't lose them. They were ripped from us. And by the way, uh, Roger Goodell said, we lost St. Louis. And I had to send him a nasty tweet that he doesn't read, but I felt better about it. Nice. What did it say? uh, I said, uh, you didn't lose St. Louis. You ripped the Rams out of St. Louis. St. Louis was there for you. St. Louis was willing to pay for a stadium to keep you there. You didn't lose St. Louis. Unbelievable. Part of the reason I think that it hurts so badly that the Rams left is because we were a part of the most special team I think the NFL will ever see, and that's mm-hmm. the greatest show on turf. And when the Rams came to St. Louis and that team happened so shortly after they came here, it was magic. People always say St. Louis is a baseball town. St. Louis is a sports town. And people are so emotionally invested in sports here. But that 99 season will forever live on as one of the greatest things we've ever seen. No doubt about it. And not only from a local standpoint, and it, and it is one of the all-time great things. It's amazing that we're coming up on 20 years wow. since that happened. But from a national standpoint, too, even the NFL Network, even though they completely disregard the idea of St. Louis having been in their league, they still have to show highlights from the greatest show on turf because 
there still hasn't been a team that scored five with all of the offense in the league. Still hasn't been a team that scored 500 points three consecutive seasons like that team did. And it's going to wind up having probably five Hall of Famers when wow. you have Kurt, Orlando, Isaac, Torrey, and Aeneas, and Marshall six. It'll wind up having six Hall of Famers uh, once the receivers get in. And hey, I guarantee you there's not a Patriots team through their dynasty that's going to have six Hall of Famers. Not one of their teams will wind up having six Hall of Famers on it like the the Rams, the great Rams teams did. So it was really special. And the fact that they came out of nowhere and everything about it, the guys for the most part were really, really good guys. Marshall was kind of a hassle to deal with at times. But they all had this in common, and I've never seen it with another athletic team that I've been around. Even the the great Cardinals teams of Tony and uh, the great Cardinal teams of Whitey Herzog. To a person, that group hated losing so much. And I think that's the most important trait for a great athlete to have is to hate losing. And they just hated losing, and that's why they were so good. Randy, you were there basically for every snap of that season, Mm -hmm. right? There were so many special moments that came out of the greatest show on turf, but is there one moment that you look back on and you say, wow, I can't believe that happened? The one that stands out to me is the first playoff game ever in St. Louis, the first offensive play, and Kurt Warner hits Isaac Bruce for the 77-yard touchdown pass. And it was unbelievable and just so predictable that that's what they were going to do. And the place exploded. I still have the Sports Illustrated spread with all of the people with their yellow noodles waving them in the air as Isaac is crossing the goal line. It was just unbelievable. And that was just so typical of that team to get on top like that. And they really didn't blow Minnesota away because they were actually behind at halftime. But that one play stands out. But there are a couple of others. Number uh, uh, the, the NFC Championship game. I was, we had four seats, four PSLs, and so we had my mom and dad and sister, and Joan was there, and then Patrick was on her lap. And so that we had five people in four seats, but I had sat in the same seat all year long. It was section 414, row HH. We had seats 9, 10, 11, and 12, and I sat in set, seat 9. There's maybe six and a half minutes left. The Rams are down 6-5. And I said, you know, I better get to my lucky seat. So I left the auxiliary press box where I was sitting, run upstairs, sit down at uh, in, in my seat, and not less than a minute later, Dre Bly picks off Sean King. And then two minutes after that, Kurt hits Ricky Prohl for the game-winning touchdown, which is that, that's Isaac's favorite play in the history of the Rams. And it was just unbelievable. And I, I'm glad I went to the lucky seat so that we could have won that game and gone to the Super Bowl. Yes, St. Louis, thank you, Randy, for that. <laughs> so when you look back on the greatest show on turf and then what happened following in the 2001 Super Bowl— A lot of people want to connect the dots and say, if Spygate didn't happen, and granted, the Rams lost that game for a litany of reasons, Mm -hmm. but if the Rams' greatest on turf became the great dynasty it should have instead of the great dynasty it never was, do you think the Rams ever leave St. Louis? I think they leave because— You do, no matter what. because— Kroenke had it in his mind. Kroenke may have had it in his mind on the day that he brought the Rams to St. Louis that he was somehow going to get them back to L.A. But certainly by the time Georgia died in 2007, 2008, I don't think it mattered how good the team was, how much they had won. 
I think he wanted to increase the value of that team, and it was never going to be as valuable in the number 21 market as it was going to be in the number two market. I think that was his game plan all along, and so I don't think it really did matter how how good the team was. I, I think certainly things would have changed for a lot of people if they win that game Kurt probably is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Kurt probably never leaves, right? Mm-hmm. Because he only started seven more games after that Super Bowl for the Rams. Uh, Isaac and Torrey have different careers. Mike Martz certainly has a different career. That game would have changed a lot, but I don't think it would have changed the ultimate outcome of the Rams moving back to L.A. I wonder what it would have changed for the Patriots as well. That would have been a lot different because even after they won the Super Bowl, Tom Brady only threw for 145 yards in that game. And they might not have traded Drew Bledsoe. In fact, they might have given Drew Bledsoe his job back. And we might have never had Brady and Belichick if they lose that game. Okay, so to repeat the timeline, we have the greatest show on turf winning an electrifying Super Bowl, one of the best in history. The Rams lose the Super Bowl to the Patriots a few years later amidst the Spygate clouds. And then what comes next? The literal lowest of lows, a stretch of 15 and 65, which is the worst five-year stretch of football in NFL history. It was awful. And I, a friend of mine and I were talking, we tailgated together for those first few years. And in 1998, we were saying to each other, you know, if we could just win one Super Bowl, it really wouldn't matter to us what happened afterwards. If we just have one, yeah. we'll be so happy. Well, then look what happened. And it was amazing how it dwindled. And it it really wasn't a precipitous drop. They go from, uh, they had the bad year in 02 when Kurt was hurt, and then they go 12-4 and four in 03, and then in... Uh, 04, they go 8-8, eight and eight, but still make the playoffs. And then in 05, that's when Martz gets fired. And even though, even then, though, they went 7-9. and nine. And then they go 8-8 eight and eight in Scott Linehan's first year. But then it just, the, the bottom fell out. And I think there was a lot of desire on the part of Kroenke then to start to alienate the fan base by having a bad team. And a lot of the, the personnel decisions that were made looking back were probably made to foster a more losing environment. Well, I think we've seen that with Kevin Demoff's comments in the aftermath saying, unfortunately, we want a game or two here. I mean, they clearly wanted to lose. They were tanking on purpose. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And I I think when you look at the... the, I, I think the biggest thing is when you draft with the number one pick in the draft, you draft a quarterback and never get him a good left tackle. They They drafted... Jason Brown or Jason Smith in 2009. That was before Bradford got here, mm-hmm. but he pretty much got, uh, well, well, with Smith, they've decided he could never play left tackle. And uh, so they were playing guys that couldn't play left tackle. That got Mark Bulger killed, basically. Yeah, basically. Then they bring in Bradford and they signed Jake Long for him. And they have guys like Greg Robinson. And they just had uh, people that were going to get a quarterback killed at that position and then never had any receivers for him in a league that was certainly trending toward offense from because of the greatest show on turf. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, and give the Rams credit for this. In a very creative way, they found a way to lose and alienate their fan base, but still said, oh, we're trying to win because they were paying the quarterback a bunch of money and signing moderate-level free agents. They they made people think that they were trying to win when, in fact, they were trying to lose. I don't really want to revisit 15 and 65. Living through it once was bad enough. It was bad, yeah. Um, but this is another thing. So 
obviously with the Rams leaving, it's forever a black hole on my heart, as I'm sure it is yours. Mm -hmm. But I find more joy in watching them play now and hoping that they're going to lose than I did when they were here watching terrible football week after week, hoping that they'll win. I'm with you 100%. The 2016 season, since 2000, probably to be real about it, since 2001, this includes 2004, because I really didn't want Mark Bulger to win. Uh, that sounds terrible, but I, <laughs> I, I wanted Kurt. Sure. So from 2001 to 2016, uh, my favorite season in between 2002 and 16 was 16 because that was like my home team winning and going 12 and 4 when they went 4 and 12. It was just awesome. And even this year when they lose games, I root so hard for whoever the Rams play. That's the joy I get to Michelle is when they lose games and I want them to lose in heartbreaking fashion and I don't want their fans, I don't want Kroenke to experience the pleasure of going to a Super Bowl. In fact, I don't want them to experience the pleasure of winning a playoff game. So, yeah, that's what I root for now in the NFL. When the Rams play the Chiefs on Monday Night Football, that unbelievable shootout game, I don't know if I've been that emotionally invested in an NFL game since the Rams left. And it's because I wanted the Chiefs to upset them Mm -hmm. so badly on such a big stage. Obviously, it didn't work out in our favor, Randy. But that's the thing is you just, you want to see them suffer. And I think that's part of the reason that people want you and I and others like us to move on is they kind of view this as a relationship. They say, okay, this is your ex. You need to let it go. At some point, He's he or she has moved on to someone else. And I say, yeah, but it's an ex that you got married to and you had some great years and then they were awful to you. Mm-hmm. They emotionally abused you for a really, really long time. And even though you knew you could do better, you were still in it. You were loyal to them. And then they leave you for a hot young blonde thing in California and you're left to pick up the pieces and say, what about me? I was here for you. Yeah. And so you never want that person to thrive. You never want to see a bad person succeed. I look at it more like I uh, really worked hard and developed a great relationship with a dog. And somebody took my dog out of my backyard. And I know who has my dog. And they're just an awful human being. And I can't get it back because they're bigger and richer and more powerful than I am. They took something that I was totally emotionally attached to. And now people just want me to give up an emotional attachment yeah. because they say I should get over it, that's preposterous. And like I said earlier, it's there There are certain things in life and people obviously have different priorities. Sure. And that was one of my priorities. There are certain things in life that nobody should get over. And this is one of those things for me. If you can get over horrible things happening to you or your family, good for you. But you can't tell me how my mind and my emotions work. It doesn't work that way. You and I love St. Louis. We are St. Louis Mm -hmm. through and through. We genuinely care about our community and we want to make it a better place. And so for someone, anyone, but especially a Missouri native to do something so negative to St. Louis when he could have so easily been the hero. He could have so easily said, you know what? This is my community. This is my state. This is something that I want to do to make Missouri a better place. Mm -hmm. And instead, just put them in a huge financial hole torched them on the way out and said, peace, I'm going to California for my own dime. That's something I'm never going to get over either. And I bet, Randy, in 10 years, we'll do the same podcast and we'll feel the same exact way. Yeah. And in my opinion, we should, because you do expect, and we have certain expectations of Midwest values Mm -hmm. from people from the Midwest. You're so right. And here's a guy that 
obviously has no values and no concern for anybody. He's he, he's a, a completely narcissistic, self-centered, uh, rich, narcissistic, self-centered human being. And here's a guy that his alma mater is the University of Missouri. And Mizzou asked him to get involved with their athletic program again, like he was when his son was there. And his thing was, well, everybody in Missouri hates me. Why would I want to get involved? Well, you're right. That's some self-awareness. Everybody does hate you, but you brought it on yourself. And he's uh, at some point, and I think it'll be sooner rather than later, the people in L.A. are going to learn what they're dealing with. The people in London have with Arsenal, haven't they? Mm-hmm. And oh, I, they can't I, the, the people in Denver. And I think it'll happen in L.A. There's only one reason that this team is good right now. And that reason is is that they need to sell PSLs. And once the PSLs are sold and that new stadium opens, it's going to go back to the same thing that we saw. Maybe not to that level. But is he going to spend a bunch of money so that he can have the best team in the NFL? No, that's not going to happen. No, of course not. I also think at some point there's going to be vindication for St. Louis because of this. We're going to get our retribution and the yes. justice that we deserve, hopefully. And speaking with a lot of people who look at this completely detached from emotion and from a financial standpoint and from the sustainability of the league from that standpoint, they say, hey, this could be the biggest blessing that St. Louis ever got in the long run. I don't disagree with that one iota. And I think on a couple of fronts, number one, St. Louis has already won one lawsuit against them and literally got everything they asked for, the $24 million in PSL money, plus the legal fees. The lawyers got the legal fees before the 24 mil. So all of us that invested in PSLs are going to get a third of our money back, which is what it should be with the team leaving uh, two-thirds of the way into the contract. But the other thing in the the big lawsuit is going to hit the the league hard. Even if St. Louis doesn't win, we're going to learn a lot about the lurid underbelly of the NFL that we didn't know already. And it's an ugly place. There, there are some really bad things happening that are perpetrated by bad people. And I think at the very least, we're going to find out a lot more about them. And at the most, the city might wind up with uh, just south of $3 billion to take care of some of the problems that ail St. Louis. Wouldn't that be lovely? That'd be fun. Yeah. Oh gosh, I and and I don't get the sense that we're going to see Kroenke or Demoff actually in court uh, as part of the the lawsuit, but uh, we'll we'll know what they said and what they did. Do you think if that happens that you'll be able to get some peace with this? Because when I had my very well publicized run in with Stan Kroenke mm-hmm. at a Super Bowl party, I still can't believe he talked to me for about fifteen minutes. By the way, here's a, a guy nicknamed Silent Stan who didn't speak publicly about any of this in years, and then I corner him at a barstool mm-hmm. sports party, and there's no one around, and he gives me fifteen minutes. I felt a lot of peace after that. Of course, I still hate them and want them to suffer and lose tremendously (laughs) and dramatically any chance I get. But after speaking with Stan Kroenke one-on-one like that, I I walked away being like, wow, this is a really delusional person. This is a guy who has all the money in the world. Literally, he has Mm -hmm. billions of dollars. And he's at this party. He's in his 70s at the median age there is 25 with people he pays to be around him. He rolled up to this party with Kevin Demoff and Les Need and Sean McVay and Jared Goff and all of their lackeys. And he's in a suit. He looked like such a dork, out of place. And I think you're here 
be, because you think it's cool, but no one really wants to be around you. And in talking to him, he was like, oh, I love St. Louis. You know, I'm from Missouri. I'm like, yes, Dan, we know. He just was so detached from reality. And I thought to myself, they always say money's not everything, but I, I would hate to be a person with so little self-awareness, such a lack of integrity. Money can't buy everything. No, and he used to be more normal, and you never know about a person, but he, he actually appeared to be more normal when the team first came here. I don't know if that's the case or not, but I think that you hit the nail on the head with the money. I think the, the money has caused him to believe two things. Number one, that he's somebody that he's not, and that because he has that money that everybody's going to believe him. Like, he's the smartest guy in the room. He's rich because he married a Walton, and he developed a bunch of land for Walmarts because he was part of their family. But I think he's come to this conclusion that somehow he has all this money because he's an incredibly bright human being. Well, that is not the case. And if... I would take great pleasure in St. Louis hitting him and the NFL in the pocketbook. But will that's I... that's all that matters. Right. Yeah. But to him. To right. him. To him. But exactly. will I ever reach a point where I can only be benign about how I feel about the Rams? No. I think I'm always going to have a negative emotion. As long as he owns the franchise... I'm, I'm always going to have a negative emotion about that franchise and every franchise that he owns. I also think if we take this super armchair psychology, when you look at how this all played out, he's clearly a really insecure guy mm-hmm. who's kind of a loner. And the way that this all happened, it's like Jerry Jones, who's the cool kid who runs the squad at school, was like, hey, this is a good idea. You should do this. And Stan's like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Here's a guy who never showed up to the owner's meetings, was kind of ostracized, was kind of a loner. And then all of a sudden they realize, oh, he's a pawn. We can get mm-hmm. this guy to do our bidding for us. We'll invite him to sit at the cool kids table. And then he does. And now all of a sudden he's wearing sunglasses in the booth. He thinks he's cool. And he's really not. And everyone else in the league, the Jerry Jones of the world, because there obviously were some owners who weren't down with this, are looking at it like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for your help. And isn't it amazing to you that a league that prides itself on doing so much research and knowing their product and knowing how their product is received had no idea how their product was going to be received in Los Angeles? That they just, they said, oh, well, we'll be in L.A. It's the number two market, but had no idea that L.A. doesn't like the NFL anymore. Yeah, I just, they may have known. I just don't think that they care. I think that the way things have evolved, Mm -hmm. they have really devalued the fan, which I think is in the end what's ultimately going to to kill them and hurt them the most is that there's people like you and I who have given them our money and our Mm -hmm. emotional support and invested in them who are never going to touch them again. And I think that there's, as they continue to move teams and we continue to see them devalue women and and bungle these domestic violence situations and the list goes on and concussions i mean whatever it is that means something to someone they have pretty much messed up every sector and at some point gambling is going to be legal and people are going to gamble on other sports and we are going to see the youth of america today who's not playing football because their parents are wise to concussions ascend and the talent pool is going to be lesser we'll see it decrease. I don't know when, but it'll happen at some point. It will. And I think it's happening faster rather than slower. And it's interesting. You brought up our investment. People have asked me if a team would somehow wind up here. And I don't see a scenario in which a team does wind up in St. Louis again. But would I go and would I buy tickets? No, because I know these people and I wouldn't want to be in business with them 
in any realm, whether it's buying their tickets or doing their pregame shows, I don't want to be associated with the NFL. And what I do now, because it's my job, is I consume the NFL free of charge. I know who all of the official NFL partners are, but I don't do business with them. Sorry, Bud Light. Uh, I, I won't buy anything that's an official partner of the NFL. I, as you know, I haven't been to a Walmart or a Sam's, which is Kroenke's family, since the franchise left. And I, I choose the people that I want to do business with. And the NFL is not a group. And it's not just because of the Rams move. It's because of the other things that you're talking about. The fact that they they don't condone domestic violence, but they certainly don't distract their players much from participating in those sorts of activities if a video shows up yeah then it's serious but unless there's a video it doesn't seem like it's serious to the nfl and jerry jones wanting to put a guy on his sideline after he had killed a guy at st louis and as a matter of fact in a drunk car accident the, the week before uh, there's a lot of slime there that I just don't want to be associated with. Okay, well, do you feel, now that we've kind of hashed this out any better at all, do you feel like we had a therapy session? Yeah, it's it's been a good therapy session. I always like to get this out once in a while. I know after the Rams lost the Super Bowl, I certainly feel better about it. But I got to tell you, when they're winning and everyone's got them at number one in their power rankings and everyone's mm-hmm. talking about how great Sean McVay is, he's brilliant, oh my God, Todd Gurley, it irks me like I can't even tell you. Sean McVay, and this is one of the most bizarre things that I have seen. Sean McVay got a lot of national credit for naming all the starters on the Bears defense. Did you see that? that? I did see that. That's his job. He's supposed to scout defenses and know the players on the other defense. That's that's what he gets paid to do, is to analyze those players and attack those players. If he doesn't know every starter on the opponent's defense, shame on him. He's not doing his job. If I'm broadcasting, if I'm doing the pregame show, I should know every starter on the opponent's defense. I know. It just tells you how much the media has drank the Rams Kool-Aid. They totally do. All right, Randy. Well, before we wrap this up, I want to end it on a positive note. Okay, we, let's do we that. We can't just leave all that emotional Rams baggage on the table. We have to end this on a positive note. So, as I mentioned at the top of this podcast, you have been in St. Louis broadcasting your entire career. You are St. Louis sports. You've been there for everything. But one of the things that I always try to explain to people who are from outside St. Louis is the unbelievable lineage that St. Louis has in sports broadcasting. So many mm-hmm. broadcasters not only live here, but have come out of here, both on a local stage and a national stage. And when I was your producer back in the day in the fast lane, I remember I was talking to you about something. I had some sort of a a decision or something to make. And you've always been a great friend and mentor to me. And you said to me, you told me this story. You said, you know, at at one point in my career, I had a tough decision to make. And I, I had three mentors and I went to them to kind of hash it out with them. And who are your three mentors? Kind of the holy trinity. And let's run through this. It was Bob Costas. Mm -hmm. It was Dan Deardorff, and it was Jack Buck. Yeah. So what was it like not only working with those guys, but having those three guys be your mentors? Well, it was really cool. I grew up listening to Jack Buck, and he's the reason that I wanted to get into broadcasting. And to have him be my biggest booster and my mentor was incredible and awesome. And uh, I, I didn't even cry when my own dad died, but I cried when Jack died. So it, it was... Uh, uh, he he meant the world to me. And then um, when I first started in radio, I mentioned in 1984, uh, 
Dan Deardorff had just retired from the Cardinals, and my first full-time job was producing Sports Open Line for Dan Deardorff. His first full-time job in broadcasting was doing the open line that I was producing. So uh, we did that for several years, and it was awesome. And then I met Bob Costas when I was an intern at KMOX, and this is the essence to me of Bob. He meets a 19-year-old kid, and, you know, we talk for maybe a minute, and he leaves, and then he's out for the summer doing baseball games and stuff like that, comes back at the end of the summer, probably five, six months later, walks into the office and says, hey, Randy. So this is Bob Costas doing that. Oh, my gosh. That. Were you so, dying on the inside? It was awesome. <laughs> it was, what a great guy. So uh, 1996, we have a, it was called the Valentine's Day Massacre. We had like 15 people get laid off at KMOX, oh, wow. and I was one of them. And that night, I got a lot of phone calls, and Jack Buck calls my house and says, I just want you to know, I turned in my resignation because of what they did to you. They wouldn't let me resign, but I, I just wanted you to know that I turned it in. And I said, man, I'm glad you didn't leave. So wow, uh, I, I, I still feel the, the world for Jack Buck. So fast forward a month. I, I left on really good terms. I actually got to broadcast there for that month. And I had taken another job, but Jim Holder at KMOX decides to go to KTRS. So a job opens up for me. They call me up and uh, they offer me uh, my job back. And I said, yeah, I've got another job. But, you know, I'm, I'm really committed. Uh, they call me up again, offer me more money, call me up again, offer me more money. And then it's starting to get serious. And I'm, I want to be committed to this other place where I've taken the job. Well, it got to a point where I called Deardorff and Costas. And I, 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 damn, what would you do? Well, KMOX is KMOX. There, there is nothing else at that time. There is nothing else but KMOX. You should be at KMOX. So I called up Bob, and Bob said, "Well, if you can tell, if you can ask that general manager for a guaranteed contract, and he'll look you in the eye and give you a guaranteed contract, then I think you should go back to KMOX." And that's what I did. I said, "Can I get a guaranteed deal?" He said, "Yeah, no problem at all." And then I said, "Can I do the Cardinal games when Joe Buck is out when he's doing Fox games on Saturdays?" Uh, yeah, let me make a phone call. I think we can make that happen. So uh, a half hour later, I was back at KMOX. Wow. But to have those three, and by the way, the, the morning after I got laid off, both Dan and Bob called, and it was, it was in the days of uh, answering machines. So I was out. I come back, and back-to-back calls, Deardorff and Costas, both saying, Randy, this has nothing to do with you. This has everything to do with unions and budgets and layoffs. But and both of them said, from a talent standpoint, you're as good as anybody in the country. So don't worry about this. You're going to be fine. To have both of those guys in back-to-back messages say that to me when I – and I was 34 at the time. But to be able to to hear that for, as a relatively inexperienced broadcaster, that's when I figured out, oh, I'm pretty good, is when those guys told me I was. If Jack Buck wants to turn in his resignation because you got let go and Deardorff and Costas are both calling you to tell you how good you are, you better believe in yourself, that, Randy. My head was so big that day, and it's never shrunk. <laughs> okay, so Jack Buck is so legendary yeah. here in St. Louis. When I close my eyes, I can he's the voice of my childhood. Mm-hmm. I can picture myself out on my back deck, my dad grilling up pork steaks, us listening to Cardinals games on the radio. For so many people, Jack Buck was it. And that's the thing about Cardinals baseball here in St. Louis. It's such a thread for so many things. Your family, your social life, it's everything. And right. Jack Buck is the person. He was the vessel to get you there. So what was the maybe the best bit of advice or story or moment that you had with him that you always take with you. The one thing that he told me, and it, it really 
for that time, it really resonated uh, because I was probably the first person in St. Louis that was critical of the Cardinals on the air. You know, when I started, it was Bob Bragg and Bob Burns, and it was Sunshine Lollipops. And in 1990, they were letting their really good players, Vince Coleman, Willie McGee, Ken Daly, Terry Pendleton, walk out the door. And I went on the air and I said, what they're doing to these players is absolutely criminal. And uh, I, I knew that Whitey had worked a deal with Mr. Bush had died in 1989. Whitey had worked a deal with Willie McGee to stay here and uh, sent him upstairs to Dow Maxville to, to cross the T's and dot the I's. And Willie went up and Dow Maxville said, we aren't signing you. We aren't going to keep you. So I, I was aware of that. And so I went on the air and I said, what they're doing to these guys is absolutely criminal, especially Terry Pendleton, who they benched to play Todd Zeal at third base. And... Uh, Jack listened on the way home. And so I called him when he got home and I said, did you hear the show? Yes. I said, what'd you think? He said, were you wrong? And I said, no. And he said, then you're fine. As long as you aren't wrong, you're fine. There's nothing they can say. So that made me feel good. And that was the key is I didn't need to sugarcoat anything. And even now people think that Somehow I'm in the in the pocket of the Cardinals. Well, no, I, I, I call it the way I see it, and not everything is going to be negative. But the fact of the matter is, for people, and this is part of the big head syndrome that I was just telling you about, the reason that I can say anything I feel is because I have been around on the air longer than anybody in Cardinal management and their ownership and anybody in Blues management and their ownership. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably going to be around after they're gone. Right. So I don't need to worry about what I say, especially when what I say, like Jack Buck said, were you wrong? No, I'm, it's, it's not wrong. Fans are so emotionally invested in things, and that's why being a fan is so great, that a lot of times they don't want to see gray area. They either want it to be black or white. And with the Cardinals, there's so much gray area right now. It has them not making the playoffs the past three years been acceptable? No. But are there other factors that led to that that we have to put it into context? Yes. You can't just bash them all the time. And they understand that their fans will not put up with tanking like Cubs fans did or Astros fans did. The Cardinals can't and won't do that. So they're going to have to rebuild on the fly in a different way. How many franchises and how many fan bases would love to rebuild, but be in a playoff chase in the last week of the season every year you rebuild. Any fan base would love that. Yeah. And so rebuilding takes on a different shape here in St. Louis with Definitely. Cardinal Nation than it does with pretty much any other fan base except the Yankees, I would guess. Even the Mets finish in last. Look at the Red Sox. Since the 2013, when the Cardinals beat lost to the Red Sox in the World Series, still should have won if Carlos Beltran's healthy, they win. But the Red Sox have finished in last place twice since then. The Cardinals have never had a losing record. Never. John Mozeliak has never had a losing record as their, their general manager. Pretty telling. Pretty telling. So, Randy, we talked about your three mentors, Jack Buck, mm -hmm. Dan Deardorff, Bob Costas, all three of whom went national. Yes. You've had an illustrious career here in St. Louis. You will be doing this until you decide not to. But have you ever been tempted to go national? I never have. And part of it is, uh, like you, I, I, I love the people. I love the town. And I, my family's here. And I never really had any desire to do national stuff. 
I can't do a four o'clock fight in New York, right? right? The four o'clock fight is a it, it's a St. Louis thing, and I, I'm a St. Louis guy. My passion for the Blues and Cardinals, I, I can't fake that somewhere else for another franchise or another fan base, and so my my knowledge, my history with these franchises and these fan bases is what's able to sustain me here. And I think that's one of the reasons that people hire me, because like you said at the top, I'm a, I'm a St. Louis guy, and I think people know what they sign up for when they hire me or when they they turn on the radio with me, is that I am going to be a St. Louis guy, and I, hopefully they can relate to me. Hopefully we are of the, the same thought process with our passion for our franchises. Oh, absolutely, Randy. You're you're an absolute local treasure. You're a gem. And I think just like Jack Buck was the voice for so many people when I was growing up, you're that for my generation and people below me. I can't tell you. I'm the co-host of the morning show. And when I go places, people are like, hey, how's Randy Carriker doing? <laughs> yeah, oh, I try to get in the four o'clock fight every day. You're what takes people home from work every day. And that's a very cool thing. And we're in a fortunate situation here. And I think especially now, we live in a stressful world, and you and I and everybody here at our station, we are we're in the in the toy department of life. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the black and white, and there's so much negativity among sports people. There shouldn't be, because there's enough stress in the real world. And if we can have fun with sports, and when BT and Ranj and I get together, that's what. We do. We go in with the idea that we're going to laugh and have fun, and hopefully somebody will be able to laugh and have fun along with us. I think there's too much other stuff going on in the world to not be able to laugh when you have the opportunity to. So uh, I I think in St. Louis, uh, we have a lot to be happy about. And and by the way, uh, before we end this, number one, I'm so proud of what you've done because you were the producer of the Fast Lane. You were the producer of the Bernie Show and then the Fast Lane. But like me, I started out as a producer and wound up as a host, and I, I'm proud of you doing what you're doing, and you're doing a great job. Thank you. But you and I have also talked for a long time. In 2000, we made resolutions. Yes. One of our resolutions for 2019 is to get this done and reverse that curse. We have to. So for those who haven't heard us on the air, I will give you the, the background context here. The blues are cursed. The St. Louis blues are no cursed. Doubt about it. You can... Try and mince words any way you want. The only answer is that they're cursed. The curse of Scotty Bowman, right, Randy? Yes. And so um, when you look at all of the ways the Blues have managed to lose and not win a Stanley Cup over the years and just the weird things that happen, you know that this is in existence. You so, want six right off the top of my head? Yeah, go ahead. Go. So losing Scott Stevens in a uh, arbitration case that you didn't send a lawyer to. Doug Wickenheiser going out on a snipe hunt with his teammates, falling off the back of a pickup truck and tearing up his knee. Uh, how about uh, Brett Hall leaving in free agency and then winning a Stanley Cup with the Dallas Stars? Oh, that one hurts. It was awful. The the horrible tragedies of Bob Gassoff dying at the age of 23 in a motorcycle accident, losing Bark Plager in his 50s, losing Dan Kelly when he was 52 years old, the uh, really unfortunate trade of a guy like Rod Brindamore who leads a team to a Stanley Cup in Carolina, Scott Stevens winding up leading the Devils to three Stanley Cups, and uh, to me, the, the Coupe de Grasse. Scotty Bowman leaves St. Louis, wins nine Stanley Cups. Al Arbor leaves St. Louis, wins four Stanley Cups. Joel Quenville leaves St. Louis, wins three Stanley Cups. Ken Hitchcock, one of the winningest coaches in the history of the National Hockey League, uh, is fired by the Blues. And Jacques Demers also left and won a Stanley Cup. Jacques Martin left and participated in a Stanley Cup. And the Blues haven't been in a Stanley Cup final since any of those guys left. 
I always say the blues are good luck, Chuck. You know that terrible Dane Cook movie? You have mm-hmm. to date Chuck to find your husband. Mm-hmm. And how many players have we seen? I mean, T.J. Oshie's the latest one who had to come through St. Louis, yep. kiss Chuck, and then go on and find their husband and win the cup. It's so frustrating. But yeah, so obviously, as you just lay all that out, clearly cursed, clearly. And so Randy and I have done a lot of digging on the on the dark web, and we found that there is a way to reverse a curse. It involves a gypsy and or witch, a mirror, some black salt, and just the right spell. So we are on the hunt in the St. Louis area for a witch. If you guys know a reputable witch, please tweet us. But yeah, I mean, we've got to get this done, Randy. We've talked about it for a long time. So we need to find the witch. We need to get the black salt, which I think is harder to procure than many people think. But I mean, it's the internet. We'll be able to find it. Yeah, we'll find it. We'll find it. Amazon has it, I'm sure. I'm sure. (laughs) But the thing that makes me nervous is in reading about this, it's because you basically have to bounce bounce the curse off the mirror somehow. Right, so we have to stand behind the mirror. So what you have is... I'm just nervous, though. What if if somehow it goes through the mirror and it gets us? I mean, we have to kind of make sure that we're... Maybe off, of, to, off to the side, maybe? Yeah, I, we have to okay. stand in the correct position because I'm not trying to be personally cursed. No, uh-uh. So what you do, you have a bowl <laughs> with the salt in it. The mirror is in one side, and the mirror has to be provisioned somehow for witchcraft. And then you have the p- picture of Scotty Bowman in the other. And what it does, through the black salt, the curse is reversed back to Scotty Bowman through the mirror. So that's, uh, and then we have to say a chant or something, but... We'll get that all figured out, but we need to find the black salt first. Um, I just Googled it, and it looks like you can find some on Etsy for $2.28. Oh, great. Okay. We're in good shape, then. But that doesn't seem reputable to me. Just as witches, black salt, handmade. Sounds If it's handmade and it's witches, yeah. Probably handmade by a witch. I think we'll be fine. I Googled black salt for curse, and the first thing that comes up is how to make your own black salt. Oh, really? Ooh, how about this one? An easy spell using salt to remove negative people. Hmm. Okay. Could bring this full circle, maybe curse the ramps. That's a good idea. Oh, that's a great idea. What if we reverse the curse on the blues and project it on the ramps? Wouldn't that be spectacular? We'd be heroes. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Well, Randy, this was so fun. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I enjoyed it. I've been looking forward to this to to small talk for a long time. So I'm I'm glad to be a part of it. All right, let's have Tom join us again, and we'll run through some reviews. If you haven't already, head to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to Small Talk. Give it a rating, preferably five stars, and leave a review. Like this guy, Luke Juice. (laughs) Title of the review is Crepery, five stars. Tom's remark on the Crepery visit, quote, Crepery, unbelievable, was perfect. (laughs) About when I was in Colorado and ate my feelings at a (laughs) Crepery. Yeah, I don't even remember that specific drop-in by me, but I can completely imagine that it was probably well-timed. So, yeah, hooray me. Well, a way for you to pump up yourself and a way for us to have a listener uh, show you some love because sometimes, yeah, sometimes I mean, we look, don't do that. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I get ripped on these comments more than anybody, so I'll take anything positive. Okay, how about this one? Oracle of Cheyenne sends D&B Update five stars. Great podcast. Absolutely love the banter between the three of you guys, referring to you, Sarudi, and I, along with great subject matter. One issue, I need a Tom update on his Dave and Buster's date. You guys did a great segment on the pros and cons for a first date. I need a follow-up. Tom, have you found a future missus? Also, I'm embarrassed to say this, but for at least the first five listens to this podcast, I thought Sarudi was Sir Rudy. It's fine. It's a common mistake. So, Tom... Did you go to Dave & Buster's on the date? Please provide us with an update. No, I did not go on the date with the girl. I did go to Dave & Buster's, but she bailed on me the day of. So I think that kind of puts the nail in the coffin on if Dave & Buster's is a good first date spot, which is 
clearly no because she didn't want to do it and she bailed on me so uh yeah kind of sad but it is what it is you know you win some you lose some guys i think you're better off (laughs) um yeah you know what like if she wasn't cool enough to do that then she's not cool enough to hang out with me i was gonna say i don't think that her bailing is really indicative of if dave and busters is a good date spot or not okay go on because I don't think she was bailing because of the venue you chose. I think she was bailing because she was too tired or wasn't feeling it or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that was the excuse she gave. You're right. She was like, oh, you know, I'm not feeling well, blah, blah, blah. Eh, I don't really buy it. No, I'm not going with that. She didn't want to go to Dave & Buster's. That's, that's, that's how I took it. She doesn't want to play games. She didn't want to play games. Then, you know what? I don't want to play games. Literally you know or I mean? figuratively. Yeah, so Dave and Buster's apparently a bad first date spot, but I had a good time that night. Noted. Um, well, thank you to everyone who has subscribed, rated, and reviewed, and thank you to you, Tom, for doing this on a day that you're playing her. I certainly appreciate it. Yeah, this is my Michael, Jor- uh, Michael Jordan flu game, right? Is that, <laughs> is that how that works? Uh, I don't know if we've seen the same success, but it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> and thank you again to Randy Carricker. It was so great to chat with him and, you know, just to have that therapy session just to get it all out. But we will be back in action, some post-show pod squad banter next week with Saruti. And until then, good night, Boston. Thanks for listening to Small Talk. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or the Podcast One app.